take your Bible. I hope you brought one with you. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. That's where we want to turn to this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you're visiting with us today, thank you so much for being here. Thank you to our praise team for uh, leading us in worship. And uh, just appreciate those folks so much. So, so talented. My goodness. Wonderful. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Uh, past couple of weeks, I've been reading through different uh, so resources here. And uh, one of the ones that I've touched on. Um, uh, that, that I'm wrestling with. You ever just uh, you get into something, you start wrestling with it. Uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer has a classic work called Life Together. And in Life Together, he talks about the disillusionment with Christian community. In other words, what he's uh, saying, if I'm understanding it correctly, he says that when I come here to church with you folks, um, that I bring certain expectations that I have, even if I don't know you well, I still expect a lot out of you. Um, and, and if we could just cut to the chase, um, as I kind of think about this, pretty much expect you guys to be perfect. I mean, what I expect from you is that uh, you, of course, would welcome me in the right way, that you would speak to me in the right way, that you would dress the right way so I would not be offended by that. I would expect from you folks that you would definitely, definitely love me unconditionally. I would expect that as we worship together, that you would be just sinless and perfect. That's pretty much the disillusionment with community. We tend to, Bonhoeffer says, we tend to enter into a Christian setting and we anticipate that everything's just going to be perfect and everyone is going to be perfect and everything's going to go just like we want it to go. And we're disillusioned in that ah, it just never happens. I mean, it just never happens, does it? The, the concept for us is we have a longing, and we've talked in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 about this idea that God creates this void in our lives, this stirring inside of our hearts, and this is inside of all of us. And the concept that we think about with church is that we expect the church to be perfect. We expect that. And when it's not perfect, it's not a, you know, it's a letdown. Uh, it, it is a catastrophic wipeout. Can you believe that the church treated me that way? That the church didn't treat me that way? Can you believe that the church did this and didn't do this all at the same time? And we have expectations. Can I tell you, that's good. It's good to have expectations. That's something God's put inside of us. But I want to show you this morning, as we get into Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it kind of steps on my toes a little bit. It kind of makes me want to roll my toes up, all right? Because he talks about this idea of the beauty of community. He talks about this concept in just the simplest way that I would know to relay what this wise preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying is this. He's saying that two is usually greater than one. I mean, two is usually greater than one. If we're, I know that's common core stuff, I mean, but, but still, I think, if I remember correctly, that no matter how you phrase it, to have two, that's usually more than one. And we want to talk about and kind of, if you will, wrestle with me through this text because we want to see what keeps us from being greater than we are individually. Now, as we look in Ecclesiastes 4, if you're picking up on kind of the pattern of what he does, he's making observations. He's kind of like a CSI agent. He's walking in, and he's observing everything. And he's just watching stuff. 
all right? And I was curious about this because I want to make sure that I'm not too peculiar. Any of y'all ever go to the mall? You say, no. Any of y'all ever go to, wait a second, you ever go to the mall and you just sit and watch people walking around the mall? Who does that? Who does that? Great. Great. Security is coming to escort y'all to the, uh, the... The idea there is that we love seeing how other people do things. And this is what this guy is doing, the preacher in Ecclesiastes 4. He's observing. Here's what he observes first. I'm going to begin in chapter 4, verse 1. And he talks about power. And he talks about as he observes, one of the things that we commonly get consumed with is power. We want to have power over other people because in that context, get this, two being greater than one, one powerful person sometimes likes to be greater than one weak person. Look at what he says. Verse 1. The preacher writes, he says again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. Hmm. He says, on the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought that the, the dead who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who were still alive. I don't know if you're looking for a life first, but I hope that's not it, right? He says, I'm looking at life, and what I'm seeing, verse 1, is this. There are powerful people who seem to get fulfillment, or some even, we would say, a false sense of fulfillment, because power, they exploit their power over a weak person. And that tends to make the big guy feel bigger, and the little guy feel crushed. And so as he's observing in verse 2, what you'll see is this. He says, the little guy, his observation from the preacher, the preacher says, the little guy, it'd be better if he wasn't born. Because a little guy getting oppressed by a big guy is just going to keep on, he's observed, is going to keep on getting oppressed. Now make it right. He says, this seems to be how we treat power. Verse 3, and it says, uh, the scripture says, but better than both is he who has not yet, and has not, uh, excuse me, has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So he says there are powerful people, and as we see powerful people who misuse power, then their motivation is to crush little people, and because they're envious of little people and what little people have, they use their power to take it. And he says this is how the world seems to work. Powerful people tend to crush weak people. People who have the power tend to prevail under the sun. Remember, we're looking just at the world. So he talks about power. And he says that we tend to pursue that. That's a common thing, not just in biblical times, but hope you would see today there's this tendency, this kind of the culture that we're consumed with at times. It's telling us, crush the little person. That's how you get ahead. Ignore the little person. That's how you get ahead. Take from the little person. That's how you get ahead. Now, he says there's power, and we tend to pursue it. Second, he observes this, that there's possessions. If you'll see verse 5, possessions. Verse 5 tells us this. And I, and I love the wording in verse 5. The fool folds his hands 
and eats his own flesh. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And he's talking about this idea for us in that basically laziness will destroy us. But I think even more so, we look at the idea of possessions. And a lot of times in our culture, if you're anything like me, what I'm experiencing is this. We see that there is a constant race to have things. We're constantly looking to have things. Hey, somebody has that. And that goes back to verse 5, verse 4. And it tells us we see what other people have. And we say, whoa, 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 I don't want to die without that. I want to die with that. Is that strange? Man, I'm going to die if I don't have that. Yeah, we've already seen in Ecclesiastes, you're going to die if you do have it. So the concept here is we get consumed and we're pursuing one power and then two, we're saying, well, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to go without that in my life. I'm not going to die or starve without that. So I'm going to seek after possessions. And I'm going to try to accumulate as many things as I possibly have. And we are living in this idea. He's observing the world functions like this. It says go after power, go after possessions. And those two things could possibly fill this void that's in your life. That God has placed there. Now, third thing, if you join with me, it says this. There's power, there's possessions, but then also those kind of accumulate into positions. Verse 6, excuse me, uh, verse, uh, verse 7. Um, no, let me go back to verse 6. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Verse 7, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that, he never asked. You say, Pastor, thank you. That was a good nap right there during that one, all right? Because sometimes, folks, if you're anything like me, when we start to read Scripture and the way that it's worded, if it's not a flow like we would use in Pontotoc County, what we would say is, I just can't listen to that. Pause with me here for a second. And I've got to chew on this one. Because I believe this is the Word of God, the truth of God. And this is what the wisest man who's ever walked the face of the earth is sharing with us by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Here's what he says, verse 7. He says, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other. That's a person who has nobody else. Nobody else. And why do they have nobody else? Why are they, what we would say, lonely? It says they don't have either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all of his toil. So this is what we would call in our, if we we're going we're to paraphrase the Bible here, we want to see the actual language, but bring it to today, we would say this. This is a workaholic. This is a person who is working constantly and at, at the expense of working all the time. They are not building relationship. And so at the end of their work... As we've said, all your work's going to be handed over to someone else. That's what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes. At the end of all of your work, at the end of everything that you've been pursuing, if you're a workaholic, what's going to happen is you will turn around and the promise from Scripture is you will be all alone. And you say, no, I've got this person with me and this person with me and I've got this employee and this employee and this employee and this coworker. Can I tell you, there will come a time for all of us when work will cease, where work's going to cease on this earth. 
And so when we look at verse 7 and verse 8, it's kind of complex how he words it. But get this, one verse, uh, excuse me, verse 8, one person who has no other, a lonely person, doesn't have a son or a brother. They've abandoned him apparently. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and unhappy business. He says, I'm working my entire life. And I'm not investing in any relationships. And so those people that I'm not investing in will eventually abandon me. I'll keep working, striving to have all the position that I possibly can to get elevated, to get promoted as far as I possibly can. And then when I get there, it'll end. And I'm going to be alone. He said, well, my family would never abandon me. Your family, because of the fall in Genesis 3, has a tendency to respond in like kind. And he has observed here for us a shocking truth. When we don't pour into another, then another very rarely will pour into us. When we don't invest and commit to one another, then eventually, when people aren't invested in, then we find they tend to seek out some other relationship where they will be invested in. Is that making sense to anybody? So, men, the promise from Scripture is this. If you don't invest in the relationship with your wife, your wife still has a longing for that kind of relationship. She has a longing inside of her for a male, a relationship with another male. And if you don't tend to that, then she has a tendency to seek satisfaction elsewhere. Does that connect? It's a sobering truth for us. When we don't invest in our kids like we're instructed to in Scripture, when we don't pour into them, when we don't invest in them and we say, hey, you're priority in my life. You are my reason for being here at this time. I'm pouring into you and investing in you. When we don't do that, we should not be surprised when our children, as they get older, flee from us and never return. This is the observation that when we're pursuing some kind of position, some kind of promotion, then what ends up happening is we get consumed in a workaholic mentality and we say, I got to get it, I got to get it, I got to get it. And we're sacrificing relationship. So here's the concept, the transition part for us here. As we get to the end of verse 8, we see there's power and there's possession and there's position. Those are the three P's that we tend to pursue. And can I tell you, the folks around us who don't know Jesus are consumed with those things. And you and I must hear Scripture. And we've got to have the courage to be different. Well, if I, I mean, let me tell you the reality here. If I'm not pursuing power, there's a chance that I would become the person getting crushed. If I'm not pursuing the, the possessions, there's a chance that I'm going to be the person who goes without while everybody else has got the stuff. If I'm not pursuing position, it's possible that I am a step in somebody else's pursuit. 
And here's the reality that I wanted to share with you today that just rocks my spiritual life. You ready? God is not interested in pursuing more power. He can't. He's got it all. God's not interested in pursuing more possessions. He already owns everything. So there's no desire inside of God to have more things. God is not interested in a higher position because He is recognized as the King of kings, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the ruler of all, who will be ruler of all for all of eternity. It's hard for a God like that to be motivated to pursue promotion. Yeah? The beautiful picture of our God is that in all the things that the people around us, the world around us is pursuing, the model that our God follows is this. He's more passionate about people than he is in power or possessions or position. He's more interested in loving you than he is and trying to gain more things. Wow. So he tells us here that if we're going to be like him, then the transition and the thing that makes us different as Christians, as we're living in a culture that's consumed with the pursuit of power and the pursuit of possessions, the pursuit of position, as we're living in that, what will make us stand out is when we value people we value people more than any of those things. Here's what he says. There's the value of people, and he actually gives us four things. All right, four things I want to share with you quickly, beginning in verse 9. Verse 9 says, two are better than one. You say, Pastor, I thought you came up with it. No, 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 no. That's actually God sharing this with you. If you need the math, two more than one. Two, in fact, he says, Better than one. Get it? Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. That's how people used to travel back in that day. They would travel in pairs so they could keep each other warm. But how... Can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And catch this, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So he tells us there are actually four benefits to valuing people. You say, I mean, really, if I give up my pursuit of power and possessions and position, and I start just investing in the relationships. I start investing in my spouse, or I start investing in my kids, or I start investing in my neighbor. I start investing in my family. I start investing in discipling relationships. How is that going to actually make a difference? Here's four ways. One, uh, the word here is production. Verse 9, it says that two people of like mind, working towards the same goal, will produce more than one person by themselves. Can you dig that? Can you wrap your mind around that? How many things this week did you do that would have been easier with someone else? Hey, one of the things I learned is this. 
tried to change the blades on my lawnmower. Two people, maybe three, two people to do that. We have these things, Jonathan, that are um, on our bed. We have the, the little stilt things. I don't know why. We've got the stilt things where we put the little uh, the wood blocks underneath uh, the head of our bed, right? Thank y'all. Those of you who look at me like I'm crazy, that really helps my self-esteem. But we do that. You don't have to, but we do that, right? So yesterday I was trying to lift up my bed and put a wood block underneath the legs, right? Two people are better in that case. Two people produce more than one person by themselves. Simple math. Check this out. This is verse 10. Verse 10 talks about promotion. And it says this, that if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. So when we invest and we value people, here's the idea. You will have someone in your life that will promote you, that will be encouraging to you, that will say, hey, come on, you can get after this. Hey, come on, we can do this even, if you see verse 9, we can do this together. Don't give up. And can I tell you, there's a great, great fire inside of us when we wrap our minds around this that we can produce more together than we can apart. And then also, we can promote one another. We can encourage one another. And that ignites inside of us something that makes us say, let's do anything. Let's go after it. Because if you're with me, then I'm not alone. And I believe that two greater than one. Verse 11 tells us this. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one warm themselves alone? So there's provision. There's provision. One of my favorite stories. Favorite stories. I tell this in our Connect class for uh, those experiencing uh, or wanting to do new membership. Um, we had moved to a church, and it was a, a bit far from home. We got our first paycheck, and because we are Americans and Christians, the first thing we did with our first paycheck wasn't we worried about bills. No, no, no. We went and bought meat, lots of it, frozen meat. And we said, we drove to the grocery store and we experienced the grocery store for the first time. We got a bunch of meat. We brought a bunch of meat home, spent most of our paycheck, came back to the house that we had just purchased, just put our fridge in there, walked in, and there was water all in our kitchen. And the fridge, especially the freezer, completely had gone out. It was about midnight when we got home because the grocery store was so far away from our church from where we were living. Who do you call? And I was, um, uh, I was at a workshop years later. A friend of mine named Scott through New Orleans. Scott was teaching and he asked this question. He said, who is your 2 a.m. friend? Who is the person that you know at 2 a.m. you can call upon? You see, at that point, in that early existence with our church family, we didn't have 2 a.m. friends. We didn't have family close by. We had meat that was ruining, and that's a sin. Amen? So, who is your 2 a.m. friend? Who is it that you can call at an inconvenient time and know that they are longing to provide for you? Man, that's, that's the benefit of two being greater than one, benefit of community. Then the last thing, verse 12, he says is this. He says, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Can I tell you something? If I'm ever going to get attacked by somebody, I want you to come with me. I mean, 
Clint, if there's ever one guy who's going to come and attack me, I would like for you to come with me. Not to watch, Clint. You understand what I'm saying here, right? Not to, Clint, Clint's like, I'd like to see. No, no, no. But two are greater than one. And then catch this in verse 12. He's been saying two are better than one, 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 but three is better than two. But three is better than two. So let's clarify something quickly. Two bodies existing in the same environment are not better than one body existing in the same environment. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about movement. And he's saying here, if you have a goal in front of you, then someone else who has that same goal is going to help you get to that goal. The beautiful picture of the gospel for us is this, is that in my sin, you come and you expect me to be perfect. I understand that. I understand that. That's the disillusionment with church, the disillusionment with community. And I say to you, I'm a sinner. And the gospel reminds me that I'm a sinner. So I'm always going to let you down in being perfect. I'm always going to let you down in being perfect. But because we are in community together, you should not allow me to stay in my sin but you should come along and provide for me. You should come along and encourage me, promote me. You should come along beside me, and you should say, hey, Brother Casey, let me help you with that. Let me walk with you through this. Let me carry you through this. Let me provide for you what you need in order to get to this. And here's why. It's not because of who I am, but what the gospel tells us, church, is this. You and I only have one significant thing in common, and that is not a college football team. And it never will be. It never will be. It is not a geographic location. That won't always be the same. But let me tell you what changes your life and what changes my life. Jesus Christ lives inside of me. And it is His calling on your life that every person you encountered this past week here and be invited to know Him as Lord and Savior, their eternity is at stake. And that you would say, that's big. I mean, that's a big mission. Can I tell you something? You should never tackle that by yourself. You should never see the calling that God has placed upon the Christian's life as an individual opportunity for you to show off your evangelism skills. We need to see this idea. You and I should have a common goal. And that's that Jesus Christ would be proclaimed and glorified among all the nations, beginning in Ecru, Mississippi. And when you and I share that common goal, you and I will not let anything, it, anything distract us from reaching that goal. You and I will sacrifice everything so that we together can reach that common goal. You and I will encourage one another to not give up, but come on, those people's eternity is at stake, and God can use someone like you and someone like me, and let's get together and let's start moving in the direction that God has saved us to move in. Listen, if he were through with you, he'd have taken you by now. But yet, he has you here. He's placed you here. And he has invited you and I 
to share in a common mission and a common goal. And that we would, like the early disciples who model for us, we would be imperfect in our endeavors. That we would, like Peter, say things at times that are just dumb. I do that. I do that. But we would give it all the way so that the mission that he has assigned to us would be fulfilled. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, as we come to you today, we do not want to share space. without sharing Savior. Lord, would you bring us together around one common Savior, one common mission, one common goal. And this is the desire of my heart as a pastor and even more so the desire of my heart as a Christian. It's these things we pray in your name. If you look this way, I'm going to throw the guys in the sound booth a little curveball. At the end of my PowerPoint, can you guys bring up the last slide of my PowerPoint? Or is that gone now? Can you do that, the last slide of my PowerPoint? I want to show you guys this as the praise team begins to lead us in response. I know, it's scary. Come on all the way through, man, to the end. There we go. You got it. Now, Here's the idea of the common porcupine. 30,000 quills, each of them pointed, sharp, deadly at times, definitely painful. And porcupines, when they encounter others, other porcupines, other people, they have two basic responses. A words, you ready? Avoid. They run away. They run away. Anytime they get around somebody else, they run away in fear. Attack. Anytime their power or their possessions or their position is challenged, they use those 30,000 quills to attack. And can I invite you today to consider this? This is how many of us, with our animal instincts, our sinful nature, those are the two ways we tend to respond in community. I'm going to avoid you. I'm going to stay away from you. I'm not so sure about you. I mean, you, I've been hurt before. Or we turn on each other, trying to defend. Can I invite you to embrace this thought as the praise team leads us in music? The simple idea is this. I'm not an animal. But by the grace of God, I have the Spirit of God living inside of me. And the Spirit of God living inside of me transforms me. So, in a very unique way, can I say to you, porcupines reproduce. Not sure how, but I know we keep seeing more and more of those little guys. They keep coming around more and more. And so if porcupines can find a way to reproduce, and they don't even have the Spirit of God, can you imagine as we, with the Spirit of God living inside of us, a clear word from God, a clear mission from God, can I tell you that we have to stop avoiding each other and attacking each other? And we have to find a way to let the Spirit of God guide us and lead us to be community. Can I invite you?
And our invitation song here, the praise team's going to sing. As they sing, our altar's always open for you. Anytime that you want to come forward. I'm here at the front. Brother Porkchop's here at the front. If we can talk with you, we can counsel you. Not sure how much we can help, but we'll help you every bit that we possibly can. But more so than that, can I invite you to say this? You're a member of a community, a spirit-driven, gospel called. And we believe, based on the teaching of God's word, that you with us, you with us, will accomplish kingdom things. And I want to ask you to be invited to join in that. Would you stand to your feet as we worship together?